All right. And also, um, if you could put on the next slide too, thinking, great. All right. There's just the psalm together, Psalm 8. We're, it's great. Uh, that Psalm 1 is a very important psalm. Yep. All right. Next one, please. Yeah. Now, I'm going to get you to read this with me. Um, psalm 8. Um, now, I chose the Passion Translation just because it gets us um, to with a different wording to think again about what the passage means. And uh, let, let's read it together, shall we? O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. Keep it going. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honour. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. The flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea and everything that swims the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic your name fills the earth. Thank you. Father, we pray that as we consider your word today, you will make clear to us something of your own heart so that when we leave together, after a cup of coffee and tea and a bit of chat, that you will be more dear and more real to us than ever before. In Jesus' name. Um, <clears throat> this is a remarkable psalm. Now, everybody, I think, knows a little bit about the writer, um, the uh, a psalm of David. And David was born around 1000 BC, a long while ago. And, uh, and, and the world was um, obviously a very different place then. And, um, and yet there is in this um, passage a remarkable, really remarkable uh, revelation for that time. Now, of course, when you and I, we read this, we look back, don't we, on it? And we look through the lenses, if you like, of what Jesus did for us. So we get that we're important to God because of that, don't we? When we look back like that, and we, we open our Bibles with our 21st century glasses on, we look back there and we say, oh, yes, of course, mm, yes. Yes, remarkable, yes, we're very, very good, yes. But if you were 1,000 years before Jesus had done that, if you were 1,000 years before that, I guarantee you'd have seen it very differently. And sometimes when we read the Bible, 
we, we too quickly put our 21st century glasses on before realising what was happening originally. And so I want to spend some time painting a bit of a story for you. I don't know whether you've noticed, but starting now, have you noticed how our Western part of the world has been systematically trying to replace God at every level of human society? Have you picked that up? Yeah. It's come up in our government, it's come up in our education, it's come up in our health, it's come up, you know, heaps of places, right? And we know that as we look at our society, we see, wow, um, I'm old enough now, and maybe I'm not looking anywhere in particular, but um, I'm old enough now to remember that it, it would seem that we used to be more a central part Christians and the church used to be more a central part of Australia. Now we find ourselves, maybe, is it too harsh to say we're on the edge a little bit? We're relegated to the edges. And so we've got a movement that's very strong in our country now, which is seeking to remove God from any public space. And if you want to follow him, well, you you just do that quietly. Uh, your own private affair, you just do that on your own and don't tell me anything about it, I don't want to know about it and it's got nothing to do with you. And of course we saw how complicated that got when the latest Prime Minister we have is actually a Pentecostal Christian. That's caused a few journalists not a bit of angst. Um, How is this possible that we have a Christian Um, someone who actually goes to church on a regular basis and who loves God. How does that work out? And is this going to be the beginning of the end for us and all that sort of thing? We see right now in in our culture how God is being removed from the central area of it to the edges and even seen as being irrelevant. Now, we already, and we know also, that this is not the first time this has been achieved. You know, there's been, it was a very interesting thing that um, at the time, for a long period of time, right up until about 300 years before Jesus, the, the, the sense of, the, of God was God's, all right, more than one, and uh, you usually lived in fear of him. You were never unsure whether you had given him enough. There were offerings required, but if you gave him the offering, you could never be sure that that was quite enough. And so there was a fear of God, and a lot of people felt trapped and, um, and enslaved by God, by the gods. And there were many of them. Now, about 300 years before Jesus, there was a Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus. Epicurus. Now, Epicurus was an interesting fellow. He was kind of, most people, if he lived now, everyone has said he's kind of like an atheist, all right? I don't think he would have called himself that, but now he would be seen as an atheist. And he said, do you know, he said, I don't think we need the gods anymore, so let's get rid of them. Let's, 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 Let's push them to the edges of society. You know, because after all, how do they think of us? They think we're just beneath contempt. We're not important at all. 
We're just pawns in their game. And they'll move us around whenever they choose. They don't really care about us. They would rather just use us up, destroy us at a whim. If they wanted to get rid of us, that's what they'd do. They don't really have any care for us. They've, they've never had any care for us. And everybody, well, not everybody, because most of the world at that time was stoic. That means they believed in all the gods and they were in fear of all the gods. And then this one fellow starts to say, you know, we don't need God. And I'll give you the reason why. He's harsh, he's judging, he, she, it, whatever, them. They are always out to destroy us. Let's get rid of them. We don't need them. Let's be God ourselves. Now, does that sound eerily familiar to you? Yeah. 300 years before Jesus is when Epicurus lived and taught. And every now and again, Epicureanism or his teaching pops up again in human society. The first time it did was in the 11th and 12th centuries. The second time it did, we think it was the second time after Epicurus, was about the year 1600s, 1700s, when a thing called the Enlightenment began. Have you ever heard of that? Ever read your books in school and done Enlightenment? Here's the idea. Let's take God and kind of remove him from the centre. He's really not the most important thing. Reason is. Does that sound right? If we just use our brains and science and we, we, we don't call God God anymore. We call him providence. Or we call it nature. What we're trying to do is, it's, it's what Epicurus was trying to do. Let's take God out of everything. And the reason why we want to do that is because he doesn't really care for us. He hates us. He really doesn't have any concern for us. That makes Psalm 8 all the more amazing. You think about it. In a time when most people thought God was a harsh, relenting judge, some sort of cosmic cop that just wanted to make our lives difficult, this revelation comes. Now, I wonder... Oh, yes, there it is. Can you see that? Okay. If you look down, can you see here is this... Here is this majesty of God, streams from the heavens, filling the earth with the fame of your name. That sounds like God. Big, massive, great, awesome, powerful, just big. And then he says, but you have built a stronghold by the songs of babies. Now this was taking the Hebrew in the, in the psalm to actually help us to see that what we normally associate with God actually comes out of the mouths of babies, out of the weak, out of the, you know, if we ask this little one nine weeks old, right? Nine weeks old? How's the sleep going, brother? <laughs> Not at all, hallelujah, yes. Uh, anyway, <laughs> this is a beautiful person. We wouldn't ask her to pack the chairs up after service, would we? Wouldn't do that because we know she can't do that. But we'll give her a few years and then we'll ask her to do it and maybe she'll be keen to do it. We, we see this picture of this great God who normally uses things up and many of the gods actually sacrificed the babies, called for the sacrifice of babies. How ironic there that this in this, the babies are the ones who enunciate the praises of this God 
who fills the, the heavens with his fame and his glory. You know, this is counterintuitive. This psalm says things about God that are brand new, thousand years before Jesus. When we read this psalm, because we know Jesus, we actually say, oh yes, of course, that was a great revelation. But none of us in this room know how big it was. Most people, even the Jews, assumed that God, Yahweh, whatever you call him, Elohim, he was great, he was awesome, he was big, he was out there. So help me, you make one move and you could get yourself in a big strife. There was that sense of fear, uncertainty, uncertainty about God, even in Israel. And now David writes this song. And he says in it, just go, go down a little bit further to the... the, the um, oh, no, the, the one before, go back. If you look further, com- compared to all this cosmic glory, can you see it there? Why would you bother with puny mortal man or be infatuated with Adam's son? Now, that's the current view. That was the view that most people assumed. Why would you pray? Why would you bother doing anything, really? Because you were puny, mere mortal man. Why would you be infatuated with Adam's son? Now, you and I, we look back and they say, well, we know that he is, God is infatuated with us, don't we? We know that. How do we know that? Because Jesus came and he gave himself for us. We know God is infatuated about us. He's crazy, given our inconsistencies. He's crazy. But he is infatuated with us. We give thanks to God every day for that, don't we? Aren't we grateful for that? Yes, of course we are. So, but here's the view. You see, first, a thousand years before Jesus, before this wonderful act on the cross, compared to this cosmic glory, why would you have anything to do with us? Why would you be infatuated? Why would you bother with us? Why would you be infatuated? It's only when you put yourself in a pre-cross environment, and that's so difficult to do, isn't it? Because we've grown up in it or we have this revelation now from the word and so it's precious to us. It's very hard to go back. But it's only when you realise that many generations of people who followed Jesus, uh, who followed um, the, the, the Jewish faith, Judaism, they had looked at that and wondered because they too would have struggled with it. How is it that God would be interested in us? How is it? Isn't it easy to have that harsh view of God even now? Don't you know Christians or people who come to church who actually have that view of God? Why would God be bothered with me? Why would my knee be important to him? Does that make sense? Why would my knee be important to him? Why would my lack of sleep be important to him? That's just something that is puny and man and mortal and... Why would God be interested in that? Now, we see that. We look back through the cross and we go, ah, yes, David, that was good. But it's not until you actually get into David's shoes and his generation and the many generations up until Jesus that you begin to reason, begin to realise that this is changing the mould. This is shifting things in a mammoth way. 
just with a few words, God is shifting everything. Isn't that marvellous? Don't you give thanks for it? That there was a thousand years before Christ, God revealed that in actual fact he was infatuated with us. What honour you have given to men, he says. Created only a little lower than Elohim. Crowned like kings and queens with glory and magnificence. It's a big picture. It's how God thinks of us. You've delegated the mastery over all you've made, making everything subservient to their authority, placing earth itself under the feet of your image bearers. All created order and every living thing of the earth, sky and sea, the wildest beasts and all the sea creatures, everything is in submission to Adam's sons. Now this is world-changing. But it's not until you realise that this, often people live outside of that revelation and they're uncertain about God. They don't understand him. They don't realise that though we are small and weak and finite, we are also full of glory. How do you do that? Like take, for instance, this next slide. This scripture in the next slide. Oh, there's two there, isn't there? Read with me Ephesians 3.20. To him who is able to do abundantly, exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Now, what's the phrase that I underlined there? In us. Exceedingly abundantly his power beyond all we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Now, Ephesians 3.20 assumes a greatness for human beings. It assumes a greatness in human beings. And then you go and look at this one based on Isaiah 64, which is 1 Corinthians 2. Read that one with me. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Whoa, big things. What was it William Carey used to say? Expect great things for God. Do great things. What does it expect great things from God? Attempt great things for God. That, I think, is the wording of it. You heard of William Carey? The missionary to China? Yeah. Expect great things. Why would we expect great things from God? Because you look at those scriptures and you would say, yes, that's right. Great things will come. Yes, of course. But you see, we, if we just go and think about how, how big and how great we are, have you noticed what happens that people start to assume things on the other end of the tension of our thinking? Do you know, it's biblical to think small and big at the same time. Now, that doesn't mean you have to, you're schizophrenic, right? It doesn't mean that you've got two brains, although you have two sides to your brain, don't you? You've got on one side, you think small, on the other, you think big. How can you possibly do that? Do you remember the old song? It's old, so, you know, it's, it's because I'm old, right? Um, there were ten in the bed and the little one said, roll over. So they all rolled over and 
one fell out, yeah. Now, what happens when you push this way on things like, great, yes, God's power working in me, exceeding abundantly, more than I can ask or think. This is big, yeah, this is great. I'm great, I'm marvellous, I'm good. What's going to happen is we might lose, on the other end of the tension, the ability that the Bible calls for to think small. Now, have a look at these scriptures. Ah, back again, another one. Sorry, I put an extra one in there. Okay, what does the Bible say about us? Uh, Isaiah 40, look at uh, the underlined bit for time pressure. Here we go. He sits above the circle of the earth. That's the big God. And what does it say, underlined? Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Now, here's, here's the, same, the same Bible that says, you are great in the power of God in you, Right? also says you're like grasshoppers. It kind of brings you down to earth, doesn't it? Every now and again, do you got people in your life who just when you're feeling really good about yourself will begin to maybe just take a little bit out of you and, and, and pull you down a little bit? Some of us feel we have a God calling to do that for others. And, and, and yes, I'm here to keep him humble or something. Uh, my wife has had to do that and has done it very graciously, I might have to say. So, th- and we thank God for it. And I think most wa- husbands would thank God for wives that help them see reality. Isn't that true, brothers? Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. What about Psalm 103? Look at that underlined part again. As for man, his days are like grass. Now, I mean, I, grass, really? Grass. You go out there and the grass is dead. That's a cemetery out there. <laughs> Think about it. The same God who says oh, he, he crowns us with glory, he also says you are like the grass, you wither and you fade. You see there's two ends to this tension, isn't there? Psalm 8 anchors us on one end. Ephesians 3.20 anchors us on the other. And we have to try and hold them both in attention together. And to say, you know, it's right for me to go, Lord, I'm believing for big things. I'm laying hold of you by faith for great things. I'm going to see glory and honour. I'm going to see good things because that's your power working at me beyond all that I can ask or think. I'm expecting to see that, but I know who I am. And I know it's all for your glory. Do you see what I mean? So that tug of war. Psalm 8 is actually what anchors us on that end of the tension. Does that make sense? All right, have a look at Isaiah 55. Now, this would be the obvious, wouldn't it? We all know this one, don't we? My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your, way, your ways my ways says the Lord. Read this. For as high as the for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, you know, we get put in our place every now and again, right? Yes, you are involved with me. You have you reflect my glory. My glory is given to you, but you've got to understand I know who you are. 
Psalm 8 anchors us on that end. Ephesians 3.20 anchors us on this end. It tells us that thinking biblically is, thinking small is as biblical as thinking big. Now the big problem is, if you only go that end, if you go only towards Psalm 8, you say, oh yes, well, yes I'm, you know, I'm really puny and insignificant and I've got all those Isaiah and... Isaiah and uh, 40 and Isaiah 55 and Psalm 103 and a whole bunch of others. Oh, yeah, I know my place. What can that go with that? Oh. <laughs> I apologise for all those who are listening to this by tape. How are you doing, by the way? Uh, <laughs> all right, okay. If we only go that end, do you know what often comes with it? The very thing that Psalm 8 tells us not to. To accept. And that's insignificance. Small, if you think biblically small or small biblically, that doesn't mean insignificance. It means the reverse. Do you see? Often when people are in church, they get this idea that they are small and insignificant. That is not a biblical view. We are small, we are weak, we are finite, but we are not insignificant. Oh, no, we, we are, what does Psalm 8 say? We are the reflection of his glory. Oh, now that's interesting, isn't it? We have this glory given to us, power, authority and place given to us in his plan, in his scheme. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, but yes, but you don't know, you know, I'm, I'm humble. You know, even, even to the point of seeking him that he might lift me up in the due time. The Bible has this tension in it, this big tension, and it requires us to look carefully at it. You see, what this current generation has lost is um, in the words of... Um, James Kugel, who wrote a book, oh, it's about 20 years old now, called Great Poems of the Bible. And it says, something, a certain way of perceiving has gradually closed inside us so that nowadays most people simply do not register or do not have access to what has been happening, what has been visible in an earlier age. In other words, in the desire... By the way, if you put in Think Big in a Google search, 2.68 trillion responses. We, are, we love thinking big now. We love thinking big. We actually say, don't think small because that's going to be bad for you. But in the Bible, it's okay to think small because Psalm 8 anchors us. Psalm 8 says, hey, you are. What is man that you are mindful of him? Ah, it's because you've invested him with glory and honour. We can think small because small in the Bible doesn't mean insignificant and it doesn't mean worthless. So every time you're going through, so, you know, in terms of applying this scripture, every time you think about this, if you ever find yourself saying, oh, why would, why would the Lord be interested in that? Maybe you have to pull yourself up and say, wait a minute, what did that crazy fellow from Brisbane tell me? Maybe, 
Maybe what I should be doing is pulling myself up and say, no, small, finite, but not insignificant. Weak, but not worthless. There's no, there's no way you could say I'm worthless because I'm small. But how many people feel that way? How many men and women, boys and girls, struggle with worthlessness and insignificance? How many assume that's how God feels about them? How many assume they would never go near church or God because that's what they think of themselves? How could that be of any value to God? Psalm 8 anchors us on the right end. Would you turn to the next um, slide for me? We're coming to the end, by the way. It's a punchline that's coming. Isaiah 40, verse 7 and 8. Look at this. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. And then in James, which was, must have been shocking because everybody assumed the rich had it better than everybody else. And James says, No sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, the flowers fall, and, it, and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man will also fade away. That was a shock for a lot of people because a lot of people assumed then the rich men were in a separate category where both life and God were concerned. Here's the punchline. When we look at Psalm 8, it tells us that we are permitted to think small and to glory in that. Am I weak? Am I finite? Am I flesh? Yes, I am. But I am neither worthless nor am I insignificant because the Lord has invested me with his glory. What is man? When I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you ordain, what is man that you are mindful? For you made him a little lower than the angels and you crowned him with glory and honour. And so here's the punchline. When we read Psalm 8, it anchors us in the confidence that thinking small is fine and so is thinking big. Right as well. You can think big and you can think small and still be reading your Bible. Am I small in the scheme of things? Yes. Will I fade away and pass on? Yes. But I am filled with his glory. And especially that's true now because we know about Jesus, don't we? Friends, we have a remarkable opportunity here. We have a remarkable opportunity When we think about all that God has done, we just give thanks to him. Don't feel bad about feeling small or thinking small in that sense of being made of flesh and finite. But don't fall into the trap of feeling worthless or insignificant. That's not who you are. Why? Because Psalm 8, anchoring us on this end of the tension, says... You are filled with his glory. You are filled with his honour. He has invested it to you. And you know, when that revelation came, it was a thousand years before the God who became king, the word who became flesh, lived and dwelt and lived and died on our behalf. That was a thousand years before. Isn't God good? Isn't God good? That's the way he thinks. Even before Jesus, he was thinking like that. If he's felt like that about you, Jesus is not the um, start of the sentence. 
Here's the full stop at the end. Now we know all that God had been revealing comes to a full stop in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? That's why we love him, isn't it? That's why we love him. And his grace towards us means that our smallness, our weakness, our finiteness, it's just something we're going to deal with and then one day we're going to throw off and we're going to take on a glory in our flesh as well. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah? Are you looking forward to that too? And in the meantime, glory. Isn't it wonderful? You see, we are called into this and we've been called into it for 3,000 years. What is man that he was mindful of him? The son of man that you would care for him? You made him a little lower than himself and filled him with glory. Isn't the Lord good? And I pray that as you consider that word, it will come clear to your heart. Don't slip into worthlessness or insignificance. If you find yourself thinking that, pull yourself up and say, that's not true. Where did I get that from? I'm going to challenge that idea. I'm going to say, no, I may be small, I may be finite, I may be flesh, I may pass away one day, but I'm not insignificant. Oh, no, for I carry in me the glory of the living God. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's have uh, the Lord's Supper to finish, hey? It's always a lovely thing to do. I've been delegated the privilege of doing this. I'm very grateful. hope I do it the right way. And, uh, and you know, I just I began life in the Salvation Army and they never did this. So it was always, it was always interesting when I first became a Baptist to have the Lord's Supper. And uh, so it's lovely. Let's take this time together and I invite you to close your eyes and bow your head. We give thanks to the Lord. We praise him for his loving kindness and his mercy. And we say thank you, Father, that in doing this meal together, in remembering as we do now, that your presence here with us will witness again about life, And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread that he would offer as part of the Passover. As the bread was going around this particular time, instead of beginning the prayer as he did, they always started the same way. They would say the prayer of the bread and then pass it around. And this we know that Jesus broke from tradition. And breaking it, he said, this is my body, take it and eat. And so we give thanks that as Jesus brings us to this place of identifying with him, his body was given for us. So we take it and we remember. And in the eating of it, we receive the grace that comes with it, a wonderful grace that comes to us because his body was broken, it was given, it was um, allowed to die. His body was given and it was given for us. And so as you receive this, I don't know, do I get a couple of assistants? Is it you come up? All right then, okay. Okay. Here's what I want you to do. 
Um, you, the, I, I see now the instruction from my brother coming to me clearer now. I want you to come up and take the bread and take the cup. And when you get back to your seat, I want you to remember and eat the bread. But hold the cup for a moment. Would you do that? Please. Please. 